Hello, and welcome to another episode of the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I am your host, Nate Swick, and spring, she is finally here after all of the waiting, and I hope that you are out there enjoying it, perhaps listening to this podcast while you're on your way somewhere to enjoy it. Uh, It's such a frantic time for the birds, obviously, but also for birders, everything feels like it is happening all at once, and you just can't miss it. Uh, I I will go on record as one who prefers the sort of more easygoing fall migration where birds, you know, sort of take their time, hang out a bit if conditions are good. I like my migration stretched out over five months instead of crammed into two weeks like it feels like spring does sometimes. But even I cannot deny the appeal of warblers and orioles and tanagers. All in full song, and often after a long winter, you are ready to get out and about again. And honestly, I think the anxiety that a that a birder feels knowing that you, you really only get like one or two shots at a really great spring morning is part of the nature of the season. You just roll with it. And if you get one of those days, it is it is mind-blowing, and it is all the more appealing because of its relative scarcity. Uh, one of the one of the keys for that mind blowing experience is to is to put yourself in the right place. And as this podcast is published on on May fourth, I'm doing just that. Uh, maybe as you are listening to me, I am driving up to the biggest week in Northern Ohio to join the ABA contingent at the event. There, we are are excited to once again be an event co host this year. We'll have a booth at the Mommy Bay Lodge. I'll be helping out on a couple field trips. You'll be able to see Greg and John and, of course, ABA President Jeff Gordon and general everything-doer Liz Gordon at the booth and out on the boardwalk and, and all around everywhere. We're also really excited to to host a new thing this year. Uh, Jeff and Houghton Mifflin Harcourt editor Lisa White, who were co-editors of the new book, Good Birders Still Don't Wear White. We've mentioned that here before. Uh, they are they are moderating a panel of essays from this book. I am excited to be a part of that, uh, along with some other really fascinating people. Uh, I'll be honest, more fascinating than me. That will be that will be Sunday evening at the festival. You can get more information at the Biggest Week in American Birding dot com. And I hope, technical issues permitting, uh, that we will be able to record that panel discussion and present at least part of it as a podcast in the near future. So that's very exciting as well. So if you are a listener and you are going to be at Biggest Week this year, please come by and say hi. Uh, tell me what you like, even what you what you don't like. We certainly love to hear it. And speaking of mind-blowing experiences, I share the promise of one that I had earlier this year. I headed out to eastern North Carolina in a search for the mysterious yellow rail. Did I see it? You will have to stay tuned to the third part of the episode for that. But first, Jody Allaire from Bird Studies Canada is here to talk to me about the Great Canadian Birdathon and the conservation work that it helps to fund all across the northern half of the ABA area, though I suppose in terms of total area, it's really more like the northern two-thirds. Canada is, is very big. Uh, he'll be with me right after this week's Rare Birds. This is your Rare Bird Focus for the last part of April, and we are still talking about Florida. The last couple weeks have seen a sustained run of Caribbean rarities in Miami-Dade and Monroe counties in the southeast part of that state, including multiple Bahama mockingbirds, one Lasagras flycatcher uh, that stuck around only a couple days, a thick-billed vireo, another Cuban vireo, which, if you're keeping count, is the ABA area's third and the second this spring, a fork-tailed flycatcher, and too many western spindalis and bananaquit to mention individually. The speculation among Florida birders is that conditions for this bounty were, at least 
partially set in motion last fall when Hurricane Matthew took a path that put it right over eastern Cuba and the Bahamas as a Category 4 storm. It did a ton of damage to the islands and likely impacted the breeding ranges of these birds, many of which are quite common just over in the Bahamas. So the theory is that these these birds are returning to their breeding territories, they are finding poor conditions there, and then they just continue on over the Straits of Florida to the North American mainland. It's an idea that certainly makes a lot of sense given everything that we've seen in South Florida so far this spring. Uh, There were four first records to report since we last checked in. A golden-crowned sparrow was a first for Indiana in mid-April. This is the farthest east sighting of a cluster of golden-crowned sparrows seen in the upper Midwest this spring. A white-tailed kite in northeast Iowa was a first for that state. There was also one in Kansas earlier this month, so that might be one for birders in the middle of the continent to look for, particularly with this extreme weather, these powerful storm systems uh, churning around out there. This is a species that definitely can get pushed around by that. In New Jersey, a little egret was a long-anticipated first record for that state. The northeast up into the Atlantic provinces seems to get these birds annually, but they are definitely less frequently found further south. Uh, That no doubt has to do with the fact that there are more snowy egrets to pick through down there, but uh, this time of year the differences between the two are more pronounced, and now is a great time to look for this species. And last, a northern fulmar was salvaged from the Lake Superior shoreline in northern Minnesota, furnishing a first record for that species and the entire tube nose family for Minnesota. States and provinces in the eastern Great Lakes do get tube noses, and most of those are fulmar from time to time, but those are these are very rare in the western lakes. Pretty remarkable that it was even found at all. That is only a part of the rarity scene from the ABA area for the period. For the whole shebang, check out the Rare Bird Alert at the ABA blog every Friday morning. And for regular real-time updates on all of the continent's rarities, join us at the ABA Rare Bird Alert Facebook group. That's facebook.com slash groups slash ABA Rare. My guest today is Jody Allaire. He's a researcher and science educator for Bird Studies Canada, which is the, the foremost bird conservation organization in Canada. BSC is once again sponsoring the Great Canadian Birdathon this May. It's an annual fundraising slash birding race to raise money for the many conservation projects that Bird Studies Canada tackles across the country. He's with me now to talk about Birdathon and the work that BSC does. Uh, welcome, Jody, and thanks for joining me. Uh, hi, Nate. Great to be here. So let's go ahead and start with the Birdathon. It's been going on for quite some time, though not always with the name Great Canadian Birdathon. Uh, what is the history of that event, and, and what does it look like now? Yeah, the the Birdathon started in 1976, and it's you know North America's oldest sponsored bird count, and uh, the it got its start really based on uh, an event that was happening in England uh, that the the British Trust of Ornithology had a sponsored New Year's Day count. And that idea <laughs> sort of inspired starting up a birdathon. And the uh, the program has been very successful. And, and within a couple of years, it was named the Bailey Birdathon. And that's basically named after James Bailey, who was a who was a very influential birding or bird researcher and mentor at the Royal Ontario Museum in Toronto. And uh, the, the program has been a very important fundraiser for, for Bird Studies Canada uh, throughout that time. The neat thing about the program, and obviously, you know, the Birdathon is, you can see Birdathons or bird races all around the world now. Uh, it's kind of cool that, you know, the first one, uh, the real first formal one was started right here in, in southern Ontario. 
the, the neat thing about it is, you know, we get people not just to go out and go birding for the day or to go out and have a big day, but, you know, to raise money to get sponsors uh, for going out birding for the day and uh, to help, you know, to help raise money to support conservation. So it's a great give back. You're going out and enjoying birds, but also raising money so we can do conservation work. And I think that's a pretty powerful combination. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so how does it work? There, there are teams involved and they, is there a time frame that they have to do their birding within? Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's sort of evolved. Um, it, it's pretty open-ended, which I think is, is one of its strengths. Um, in the early days of the Bailey Birdathon, um, which we now uh, have renamed the Great Canadian Birdathon uh, the past few years. Yeah, with a really cool logo by a uh, ABA board member. Paul Riss. I'll just throw that out there. The, the logo is fantastic. <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, obviously, we're big, big fans of Paul, and uh, he's a big supporter of us, and and obviously, you know, board member of ABA. Um, and uh, he's he's done our shirt designs the past uh, the past few years, which we, um, if people sign up for Birdathon, they get a shirt. The design this year is really fantastic with Canada Wordlers on it. Uh, really, really fantastic new shirt. So this, you know, it's a fairly open ended concept, the Birdathon, and. Uh, in the early days, there was some um, motivation to get celebrity birders. So we would get celebrity birders um, and we would have a fundraising campaign around the celebrity birders going out birding. And often they would come up here to Long Point uh, on the north shore of Lake Erie. But we've also had celebrity birders in different parts of the country. And, and so in the early days, you know, we had Roger Troy Peterson. Um, Fred Bodsworth, you know, author of Last of the Curlew, a real Canadian Canadian legend. Um, you know, Chandler Robbins, Margaret Atwood, uh, Ken Kaufman uh, did a birdathon out in, in BC. Um, so, you know, there was a real uh, motivation to get celebrity birders on, but but for the most part, it's open to anyone. So anyone can just sign up, and they basically go out birding for the day. They take pledges. Uh, they round up the money and they usually, you know, do a trip report or do some kind of summary to the people that, that donated money to them. The, the other neat aspect of this is that we've designed it over the years so that people can raise money not only for Bird Studies Canada, they can also raise money for their own nature or birding clubs. And so they can they can mark a percentage uh, of uh, of the money they raise, they can actually you know have for their own local club if they wanted to you know design a birding trail or or, or do something bird related. So it's it's also kind of a win win for local clubs to get involved uh, to to do that. We also have established a few years after it started in 1978, we started uh, something called the Bailey Fund, and the Bailey Fund, which is still in existence, um, it was a fund that was set aside to support uh, bird conservation research across Canada. So students and organizations could apply to the fund uh, to have money to be able to support, you know, the, the work and the research they're doing. Um, so that was a very important pot of money for st uh, Canadian migration monitoring stations uh, that were that were starting out could access that fund to help start their station. Graduate students could access that money to help support their work. And uh, the Bailey Fund is actually doled out about seven hundred and fifty thousand wow. dollars worth of worth of grants uh, to over six hundred projects uh, since uh, since its inception in the nineteen seventies. You know, the, which started as you know a, a modest fundraiser to try to support the work of of uh, Long Point Bird Observatory at the time, which is now you know, named Bird Studies Canada because we do work across the country, uh, has turned into, you know, a great way for local clubs to help uh, raise money for local conservation work. 
We've got this big pot of money in the Bailey Fund to support research. And of course, it's still an important fundraiser for us. And last year, we raised over uh, $230,000 for, wow. uh, for bird conservation. That's great. And I was, I was going to ask, you know, what sort of conservation projects are supported by Birdathon? In addition to the sort of, uh, you know, graduate students, young people getting out and, and doing this work, uh, how important is that to your mission? What kind of uh, research are you finding out from those people doing that work? Yeah, you know, all, there's all sorts of things. You know, the 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 funding that we get for Birdathon, you know, is sort of core funding for us as an organization. And and you know, for those you know listeners that are not too familiar with Bird Studies Canada, you know, we're Canada's leading national charitable organization dedicated to bird science and conservation. And you know, we're in the U.S. You have you know several you know really great organizations. Yeah, a number of them. I've written a number of them with you know American Bird Conservancy and and Audubon and Cornell. You know in in Canada it's really it's us. You know it's us and and uh, a lot of grassroots conservation work being done as well. And so so it's core funding to support a lot of the ne- the work we do right across the country. But the uh, there's actually a great article in our magazine Birdwatch Canada um, of the most recent issue of uh, kind of highlighting all of the different projects that have been done over the years uh, across the country. You know, it's everything from supporting uh, work done in important bird areas uh, across the country, whether it's, uh, you know, monitoring important bird areas from doing, you know, uh, satellite tracking of, of greater, uh, great and sooty shearwaters in the, in the Bay of Fundy. Um, so there's all sorts of, you know, from stewardship monitoring to, you know, hardcore research that's been, that's been uh, uh, done because of this money. I had noticed that Bird Studies Canada was doing a lot of uh, breeding bird atlases across across the country. It's such a vast country. It's you know, second largest in area in the world, uh, the relatively small population. So how does BCS get to some of these, you know, far and away places to do some of this breeding bird work, particularly in the boreal part of the continent? Well, yeah, it's a real, it's a real challenge. And I think, you know, the simple answer is we have amazing uh, volunteers and amazing citizen scientists that participate in our programs. Like we've got incredibly motivated people in uh, right across country, and you know we have about forty thousand citizen science participants per year are participating in our programs. Um, so even though we have a small population base, and you know, in our organization, you know, relatively speaking, compared to some of the bigger uh, organizations in the U.S., are, is much smaller. We bite off a lot, and, yeah. and we, you know, we we cover a lot, and it's and it's pretty it's pretty incredible. So we've got you know a lot of experience with with breeding bird atlases. You know, we've done two in Ontario, and obviously these are. These are collaborative efforts, you know, uh, with every province that we're doing a breeding bird atlas. You know, the provincial nature organization is involved. Environment Canada is involved. Um, you know, usually the local ministry of natural resources, the local birding clubs, uh, the naturalist community. So we really tap in to that. And and I think a lot of people, you know, really buy in when we're doing atlases. And, you know, we just completed uh, British Columbia and, and, you know, northern British Columbia is is very, very difficult, as you could say, with northern Manitoba. And, you know, uh, from, uh, you know, talking to, you know, people like Christian Artuzo, who was coordinating the Manitoba Atlas, you know, it was, you know, there was some amazingly dedicated citizen scientists. And, and that's how we were able to achieve such such coverage. And uh, it's great to see people buying in with a program like that, because the the science and the data that's collected for atlases are, are hugely important for how we monitor uh, Canada's bird populations. And, you know, so it's one thing to have the idea, you know, but we, we need people to achieve it. And uh, so the fact that we can have success 
and, and getting people excited and motivated to participate is, is, is really great. So what are some of the leading concerns regarding bird conservation in Canada? Yeah, the um, you know there's there, there's obviously a lot of similarities. So the bird right. conservation challenges between the U.S. and Canada, I would say you know one of the main differences is that you know we have a lot more Arctic, um, and the uh, uh, the the problems in the Arctic are you know are fairly well known. Um, you know, one of the uh, a few years ago, even though we we were a co-author on the latest State of North America's Birds Report, which just came out in 2016, uh, which was you know very important document basically stating you know a third of of north america's birds are 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 in big big trouble um a few years before that we actually uh as part of the north american bird conservation initiative um bird studies canada is a part of that amongst many many other organizations the aba as well the aba as well yeah that's right and um and so uh there was a big data mining effort put in uh, a few years ago to the state of canada's birds report uh sort of the first of its kind and that's compiling atlasing data breeding bird survey data christmas bird count data you name it and you know we for the first time identified the um, the state of canada's bird populations based on type and the, and the three that really stand out as being you know real red flags in terms of of groups are uh, major declines in aerial insectivores across canada um, and even, you know, species like barn swallow, which is a threatened species in Canada, even though their populations are fairly, fairly stable in the U.S. In Canada, um, we've seen a pretty drastic decline since the 1980s. Uh, grassland birds, you know, that's one we, sh- we share right, right through right through the, the Western hemisphere, right? A lot of overlap there, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, and obviously, you know, happy to see you know, chestnut collared longspur last like last year as uh, as the the bird of the year because you know that's a bird I think that more people need to be aware of is is really declining here in Canada as well. Um, so and then the last one would be high Arctic nesting shorebird species. You know, and I think the red knot is sort of the poster I would say the poster child uh, of of that group of birds that are declining. So those are sort of the three big ones right now going forward in Canada that that Bird Studies Canada and and other groups as well are are trying to deal with and to try to figure out what we can do to help them. Yeah. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of eBird, as I'm sure you are as well. And it's been really exciting to see in the last, oh, year, six months, the year, um, a lot of historic data. I saw there was a ton of historic data from Ontario that came into eBird uh, not that long ago. It's, it's so neat to see that full view of what's going on with North America's birds. And for a lot of those birds, particularly the boreal forest nesting species, you cannot discount what's going on up there. I mean, that's that's sort of the, the cradle of all these these bird species. So many iconic species nest up there. It's just been really exciting to see, you know, crossing the borders and getting this whole, you know, whole hemisphere look at what's going on with these birds. Uh, I'm sure it's exciting for you as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, you know, the boreal forest, you know, I would, I would, I guess, put that up there as a, also another major area of responsibility that that Canada has. It's, it's really, you know, the nursery for a lot of our, our neotropical migrants, especially. Um, yeah, you know, eBird, Bird Studies Canada has been, been involved uh, with, with Cornell and, and, and Audubon with, with eBird. Um, and we, Bird Studies Canada coordinates the eBird Canada, which is the bilingual portal, um, and uh, and have been heavily involved in that. In fact, you know, uh, there's been a lot of work done very recently on getting this getting historic data into eBird. There's a lot of work in the in progress right now to try to get more and more of that data, uh, getting all of the the point counts from atlases uploaded into eBird. That's that's what you were referring to. That was that was really huge. And I think in many ways 
you know, it's, well, it's the future in a lot of ways, right? But it's, it's going to fill a lot of gaps in, in knowledge, right? You know, and breeding bird census, obviously, or breeding bird survey, I should say, you know, the, the gold standard with which, you know, we monitor North America's breeding birds. But if, you know, if it really falls short in capturing a lot of the Northern boreal stuff, eBird is a way to help, to help bridge that gap as is migration monitoring and that's was one of the motivations for our you know uh that came out of our creation as long point bird observatory in 1960 right is is to collect data on migratory birds with you know one of the big research goals is to try to fill the gaps of our northern boreal birds that come through like great cheek thrush and swainson thrush and and uh connecticut warbler you know try to collect data on these birds that are not being captured effectively on with other means like Christmas bird count or or breeding breeding bird survey. So yeah, you know we've got a long history of of collecting data and creating programs um, to help uh, to help understand bird bird populations. And it's been it's been really great. And it's certainly been a real pleasure to be part of an organization that does that does such great work. Yeah. So so spring is coming up. Southern Ontario always been considered one of the great hotspots in North America. Uh, for for spring birding along the shores of uh, Lake Erie, there. What are you looking forward to? What are you planning on doing in the next couple of weeks as the birds start coming in? Yeah, uh, hopefully as much time outside as possible. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it's it's the constant the constant battle. Yeah, you know, it's such a great it's a, such a great time, and and certainly feel very lucky to live here on Long Point on the North Shore of Lake Erie. Um, you know, you know, 400 species on our checklist just for Long Point. You know, it's it's an incredible place. I highly recommend coming here, but anywhere along Lake Erie, you know, on both sides of Lake Erie, you know, are really great for birds. And obviously Point Pelee and places like Rondo are really great as well. Um, you know, but for me, this time of year, I don't think I don't think I would rather be anywhere else in the world than, you know, the North Shore of Lake Erie right now. I know the coast of Texas been probably pretty impressive during, uh, you know, during the late April migration. But I really love this time of year when you get waves of, of uh, neotropical migrants coming across the lake. And, and uh, you know, and one of my goals is, you know, I do a, a fair bit of outreach and education work here uh, in addition to, to research. And uh, one of my goals at this time of year is to get people out. So I'm actually doing several um, intro to bird watching uh, programs over the next few weeks to get to, to round up people that have maybe never gone bird and basically <laughs> throw them into the fire. Of, Absolutely. You know, here you go. There's a hundred species before noon, you know? The problem with starting there is that it always feels like you're going to be chasing that experience, that, that first experience. <laughs> no, it's true. You, you, there is the risk of overwhelming. But, I, you know, I think that's always one of my goals this year, whether it's doing school programs or, or working with the general public, is it's such a great opportunity to get people excited about birds because, you know, all the ducks look great and all the warblers are just gorgeous. And if, you know, if that doesn't get you into into birding and, and wanting to connect more with the natural world, then I, I don't know what will, to be <laughs> yeah. honest. You know, it's 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 such a great opportunity for all of us. Thanks, Jody, for joining me once again. Jody Allaire is a researcher and science educator with Bird Studies Canada. You can follow him on Twitter and Instagram at Jody Allaire. I'd encourage you to do that. He's a good follow. And you can get more information on Bird Studies Canada and the Great Canadian Birdathon at birdscanada.org. Thanks again, Jody. Oh, thanks very much, Nate. Thanks for having me. And for the last segment of the show today, my search for the Yellow Rail. Not long ago, I had the opportunity to tag along with a few of my North Carolina birding friends in search of one of the most enigmatic species in North America, yellow rail. There's been a lot written about yellow rails over the years, and most everything that has been written uses the same words 
words like secretive and mysterious and difficult. And the yellow rail is all of those things. It's small, it's mostly nocturnal, and it lives in habitats that are not easily accessed a lot of the time. Another aspect of yellow rails, and one that sort of adds to the enigma, is that they show up in weird places just often enough to remind you that they're out there. In April of 2015, a photo was going around the internet of a yellow rail cowering underneath a seat at Wrigley Field in Chicago during a baseball game, pecking at specks of food like a house sparrow. Rails are known to migrate over land and and show up in really bizarre places, but for this particular rail, this particular space, it was sort of all too much, so this bird has a bit of a mythology around it, to say the least. In the not-too-distant past, birders thought that the only way to find a yellow rail was to travel to the vast marshes of central Canada and listen for that faint tick-tick-tick call. In recent years, we've discovered that they will flush from rice fields in Louisiana when the combine harvesters pass over the crops, and that's been a pretty good way to see them. Where I live, there's a marsh in Carteret County on the central coast of North Carolina where they are seen nearly every winter, often in good numbers. But you you can't go by yourself and see the birds. One of the cool things about yellow rail is that if you want to see them, you need friends. So that's what I did. I got 17 other people to help. Where the North River flows into the back sound near the town of Beaufort, there are these extensive needle rest marshes, and and tucked within that larger matrix of spiky, painful salt marsh are these areas of soft, ankle-high vegetation and mud. And yellow rails love this stuff, so much so that they are reluctant to leave it even when you are walking less than a foot from them. So in order to get the yellow rails to pop up, you need to make a line with your friends and walk in this coordinated fashion back and forth through the marsh. And you have to be coordinated because otherwise the bird will just run between you because they are mysterious and difficult. I feel like I should mention that part again. So when you do this, this marsh walking thing, a lot of other birds pop up. Uh, Sedrins, savannah sparrows, and a lot of Wilson snipes. Uh, It's a beautiful place to be, pushing through these grasses and, and watching them close up behind you as if you were never there. And after about 45 minutes, we oriented along this large stand of taller reeds. And as we began to walk, a little bird popped out literally from nearly under the foot of the person sitting next to me. A yellow rail with beautiful striped back and the white secondaries that you see in the field guides. And it flew out toward a patch of the longer needle rush and kind of awkwardly sort of crashed into these taller plants and and disappeared from view. So, you know, high fives were exchanged. It was a great moment, even if it was brief. It was a great moment, partially because it was shared with so many other people, which many of the best birding experiences are. So we tried to walk around for another one, but we didn't have any luck. Uh, After that first bird, our lines got a little less coordinated, so perhaps whatever other birds in the marsh were just giving us the runaround. But that was okay. We got in our target. Everyone was happy. So that's how I got my lifer yellow rail, which really isn't all that mysterious, but it's definitely pretty difficult. And it certainly saves me from having to go to Wrigley Field. I'm a Cardinals fan besides, it wouldn't work out. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. If you enjoy any of the free online resources that the ABA provides, including this podcast, please consider supporting them with a membership or a tax-deductible donation to the ABA. We certainly appreciate whatever you are able to give, and your support makes it possible for us to continue to offer these sorts of resources free of charge to the birding community. You can find that stuff at aba.org join or aba.org donate. I just want to make a special shout out to George Engler of Huron, Ohio, Katerina Akhmatova of Birmingham, 
Beckham, Alabama, and Michael Hamburg of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. All of them joined the ABA in April and noted that this podcast was a factor. Thank you for that, and welcome to the ABA. Executive producer of the podcast and president of the ABA is Jeff Gordon. Technical production is by John Lowry with help from Greg Neese and David Hartley. John's band, The Hangabouts, does the music. You can find us online at aba.org, on Facebook at facebook.com slash birders, and on Twitter at ABA. That is not to be confused with the American Booksellers Association, though I'd be remiss if I failed to point out that members of the ABA do get a discount on bird books through our partners at Beautya Books. That's beautyabooks.com. I don't know if they are members of that ABA, but they are members of our ABA. I wonder how many individual ABAs one person could plausibly be a member of. It's a quandary. Questions or comments can be directed to me at podcast at ABA.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Till next time.